Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Julianne Williams loved the outdoors. She could have never known that a final outing before embarking on a new career would be the last trip she'd ever take. The 24-year-old Minnesota native was murdered in the Shenandoah National Park, down this trail, just off the Skyline Drive. Park rangers are guarding the crime scene, not letting anyone down the narrow dirt trail. No, you need to go back up beyond the tape now. Okay. Williams and her friend Lolly Winans were found with their throats slashed on Saturday. They were finishing up a trip that started in New York and ended in the Shenandoah Valley. Williams, one of four children, was a geology major who graduated from college magna cum laude two years ago. Family and friends remember her and what she loved to do. She always is hiking, always camping. She was uh, extremely proficient at it. She had taken many people up into the Boundary Waters, had taken uh, uh, numerous classes, first aid classes. Uh, you know, it was an expert at that. I would have gone with her at any time. The Appalachian Trails are still being hiked through here. Many park visitors, though, unaware of what happened to the two young women. Those that are, are enjoying the park's beauty while looking over their shoulders. In the Shenandoah National Park, I'm Michelle Mowry, News Channel 6. Hello and welcome to episode 181 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, I am super excited to have Catherine Miles, author of Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. And welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am very privileged to have you on the show. I had an opportunity to read the book. It is any true crime fan's uh, cup of tea, I can tell you that. And... uh, it, it was really a fantastic read, and I have to start with, how did you get involved with this case? Because it is really um, tragic. Yeah, you know, this was a murder that took place in May of 1996, and I first learned about it very shortly afterwards. I was um, that's the same age, really, as Lolly and Julie when they were murdered. And, you know, as a fellow backpacker and a fellow sexual assault survivor, um, their story really resonated with me. And, you know, it was one of multiple murders that I had learned about that had occurred either on or just off the Appalachian Trail, which had, had really kind of been like a, a home for me and where I really felt, you know, the safest and the strongest. And so, when I had learned quite suddenly that that these murders had taken place and that these, you know, strong, experienced backcountry leaders had not only been murdered doing what they loved, but also what I really loved, it really sort of shattered my sense of security and changed my relationship with the wilderness. Yeah, you talk about that in the in the book and you do say that it sort of kind of yeah, it took the innocence away of of the outdoors and as you mentioned, it was sort of your happy place, your safe place. And yeah, when tragedy strikes in in an environment like that, where you don't expect it, um, it, it's definitely, uh, an eye opener and it does change the way that you kind of go about your life. You know, what was your connection to, to the women that were involved with this, this case? 
Yeah, you know, and I think, um, you know, when you kind of think back to the 1990s, if you're old enough to think back to the 90s, you know, there was like such a sort of like, you know, culture of the time. <laughs> and when I when you look at pictures of Lolly and Julie, and you see them with like their bandanas tied around their heads and things like that, you know, they really were, I think, in a lot of ways, the kind of people that um, a lot of us really wanted to emulate, you know, they were social justice leaders, they were volunteers, they were really interested in humanitarian projects. And they were also just a ton of fun, you know, Lolly loved the Grateful Dead and jam bands. And, you know, Julie had this awesome sense of humor and was always making people laugh. And so, you know, I think that they were just really, you know, especially for women my age, you know, people who were in their early 20s when this happened, you know, it was hard to look at them and not kind of, you know, idolize or idealize them a little bit, I think. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later in 2001, when I, by total coincidence, took a college teaching job at the college where Unity, uh, Lolly had been a student, Unity College, that I really got a, a larger sense of kind of who she was as a person. And, you know, her, her legacy and her spirit just pervaded that entire campus. And you know, seeing that and getting to know the people who were really close with her really kind of brought her to life for me in a way that that hadn't happened yet. Yeah. And so <clears throat> when you were there, you basically realized um, there was a story there and something that you could relate to. And was it something that you... Um, instantly started thinking about writing about or did you decide that was it just something that like evolved naturally organically I should say through just being at the university or at the college yeah it was definitely more of an evolution you know I uh my very first day of teaching, I was 27, just out of grad school, had no idea what I was doing. And, you know, my first day of teaching was September 9th, 2000, or no, sorry, September, yeah, September 9th, 2001. And then, so the second day was September 11th, right? Like I <laughs> brand new at all of this, had no idea what I was doing and definitely did not know how to be, you know, sort of a, a leader and a facilitator at a community that had been, you know, rocked by September 11th, I think, like everybody else had. And, you know, our campus was still really feeling the effects of that terrorist attack in the spring of 2002, when um, John Ashcroft, who was the attorney general at the time, made this very public nationally televised uh, press conference where he announced that an indictment had been made in the murder of Lolly and Julie, um, and that this individual, Daryl David Rice, was was known to hate gays and lesbians. And so John Ashcroft would be using brand new hate crime legislation to seek the death penalty in the case. And, and in that moment, this became the first hate crime, federal hate crime in our nation's history. Um, and what really struck me at the moment was not just all of the attention that it brought back to campus and brought back to this particular crime, but there was this moment in the press conference where John Ashcroft was trying to draw these comparisons between um, the terror that had happened with September 11th and that by prosecuting Daryl Rice and putting him to death, that we would somehow as a nation heal from the terrorist attacks. And even at the time, I thought, you know, how, how do these two things connect? Um, and that's still not really clear to me, but, but that announcement and, and that connection that he tried to make 
made this such a political and such a sort of um, hot button media topic that all of a sudden I found myself sort of at the absolute epicenter of all of these discussions again about the crime and who had committed it and why. And so having that firsthand experience was a really powerful one for me, especially somebody who was so young and, and such a new teacher too. Yeah, it's got to be <clears throat> being in a small college like Unity. I, I'm assuming that the story was still pretty prevalent, you know, being only five years out, basically. Uh, was it still was it still something that students talked about? All of the time. <clears throat> you know, it's such a small campus. When I was there, it was about 500 undergraduates, 30 faculty members. And it was this super hippie, crunchy kind of, you know, 1960s counterculture kind of campus. And we used to joke that it was like the Hotel California, right? You could check out, but nobody ever left. So the alumni stuck around. They started their own like back to the land farms and orchards and, you know, they were raising goats and things. And so, you know, a lot of Lolly's friends became my friends, you know, and so knowing her through them and then watching how much this announcement and this indictment and the eventual sort of court proceedings really influenced them really brought home for me just how fresh and continuous the grief and the heartbreak and the fear was from this 1996 murder. And, you know, I think especially as true crime fans, that's something that we forget is that, you know, for the, the loved ones that victims leave behind, it doesn't get easier. You know, the grief doesn't go away. The, the sense of like haunting questions and lack of closure, like time doesn't heal that, you know? And I think that was my first real exposure to that and my first real understanding of just how pervasive, you know, those feelings are for people who have lost lo loved ones in violent crimes. That, yeah, that's definitely a, a an eye opener for, for you, I'm sure. And, and I mean, just losing students on a campus where 500 people, that, that's less than the amount of people. I mean, I had 550 people in my high school. And, you know, it's just like, that's, so, if we had two people killed, that would be the talk for the rest of eternity. So I can imagine that it was still very, very much a topic of conversation. And you said it was very hippie-ish. Uh, so assuming that, you know, Lolly and Julie, you know, they basically were very outdoorsy. And I'm assuming that is something that the campus obviously embraces. And, you know, that would probably have been completely impacted by this crime. Is that something that you noticed through the, you know, your interactions with the students? 100%. I mean, this was this is a college that has an environmental studies mission. And, you know, we one of the things that was so great about the school was that we were so outdoor focused. And so, you know, all of the students coming in did a 10 day wilderness trip as part of their orientation. And, you know, we as faculty and staff would go out on those trips with them. You know, we were always really encouraged to take students backpacking, you know, so I would always incorporate that into my courses, you know, whether it was taking students to the desert Southwest for two weeks, or we'd go down to the Island of Dominica and do like snorkeling and scuba diving, or even just, you know, backpacking and 
camping here in Maine. So, you know, the wilderness is, was really our classroom in a lot of ways. And so to have that violence then associated with the classroom and to know that this leader of, you know, who was, who was finishing up her degree to become a leader in, you know, wilderness therapy, that she had been murdered doing this really, really changed the tenor of that campus in ways that I don't think we even really understood at the time. Is this kind of what drove you to write for outdoors or you know, do the article? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was always really, when I was a full-time professor there, I was always really encouraged to kind of do that kind of outreach writing. I think a lot of professors, you know, all of their writing lives is dedicated to like really esoteric scholarship and research papers. But I, I was lucky enough that I could do more sort of like popular press, glossy magazine writing. And, you know, after I left teaching there full-time, um, I did start working as a trail correspondent for Outside Magazine, which was just, you know, such a thrill, right? I was literally spending a season either on the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail or the Continental Divide Trail and hanging out with hikers and backpackers. And for me, that was a dream come true of a job. Um, it would and be that's like what somebody saying, it'd be like somebody saying, go spend the year skiing and just write <laughs> about it and be like, oh, right. <laughs> And we'll send you some really cool new gear, right? Do you want some tele skis? Yeah, some tele skis. <laughs> and, and and we get and we get you in the back door, you know, like you know, you sort of get that extra privilege. Be yeah, oh gosh, that's awesome. That is so awesome. A dream come yeah, true. Yeah, I'm right very there. aware that I have a very lucky job. You know, I'm very aware of how fortunate I am to get to kind of do the work that I get to do. One hundred percent. That's, you know, again, being passionate about what you do is, is really, that's what's the point of living if you're not passionate about your job, because you only live once. And, you know, that's, the, you know, another reason why this case is so, so, so tragic is these girls were just so young, you know, they, they were just beginning their lives and never really got to start it. Yeah. And, you know, they were already poised to do so much great work. You know, Julie had had trained as a geologist, but she was also fluent in Spanish. And she had been doing a lot of work translating for domestic abuse survivors. She'd done missionary work in Central and South America. She'd done a bunch of work on Native American land and like really remote places in Minnesota. And, you know, Lolly had this very articulated goal of creating an, an outward bound kind of experience for um, sexual assault survivors where, you know, they could find that same kind of sort of strength in the wilderness that, that I think she and I had. And so, you know, knowing that and knowing that they had all of this expertise and that they had this incredible love story, you know, they had met and fallen in love in the wilderness and, you know, by all accounts of her, their friends and the people close to them, it was just this sort of like once in a lifetime love at first sight kind of romance. And, um, it was really important to me to tell, tell that part of the story, too, because um, this is, in a lot of ways, a love story, which I think makes the end all the more tragic. Yeah, 100%. I think when you involve emotions that are just, if they're just a couple friends out camping, tragic, absolutely tragic. But then you throw in the fact that they were in love and they were going down this, you know, path that they hadn't been down before. And 
the opportunities and all of the things that they could have experienced were just taken away from them. And it's just, it's so unfair in this world that that can happen. And like, here's another thing. Like, I was just wondering, like, when you started researching this, had you done any true crime reporting before you did an article on these two women? Kind of. Um, I think of myself primarily as a science writer and a science reporter. So the true crime type work I had done was either related to forensic testing, things like um, genealogical DNA, um, and it was also then the environmental component. So I had written about crimes and missing persons in the, the wilderness. So, so that was my entree into this a lot more than people who have like a crime beat and are covering courts and things like that. And so for me, one of the biggest learning curves when I got started on this project, um, because this case had been a federal capital crime and because it had gone all the way to jury selection before um, prosecutors suspended the case, there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of publicly accessible court documents, um, which made it a little unusual and made it different than, than um, some of the cases that have happened around it or that are ultimately kind of compared to it. And so figuring out how to navigate all of those court documents and what they meant was definitely a challenge. I had a research assistant who was a law student here at the UMaine Law School, and she was so patient and wonderful about helping me sort through all these boxes of documents, figuring out which ones really were worth our time and what to look for and what to ask for. And so that was like a, you know, a crash course in like criminal law 101 that I hadn't really had in terms of my background. Yeah. Talk about jumping in, uh, feet first. I mean, just, uh, right into the deep end in, in this particular case because sometimes uh you know you have to work your way up to this type of tragedy and you're literally reporting on one of the saddest and most horrific crime scenes i mean this wasn't uh you know this wasn't just some strangulation or something like that um this was uh this was a real scary place to be if you know when I mean, I feel terrible for the people that found the body bodies and found the crime scene. Yeah. Mm. And I, you know, I had to really, I had to really have some long conversations with myself before I took this on as a book project. You know, I, when it was a feature story for, for a magazine, I was like, I'm not going to have to go too deep into the really scary stuff. Right. I can avoid the really scary stuff. But as soon as my agent, and my editor and I started talking about the prospect of a book. I knew that like all of those, all of those sort of filters were going to immediately come off. And I had just come off of writing a series of stories about a hiker named Jerry Largay, who was this amazing 64 year old grandmother who was hiking the Appalachian trail and had gone missing here in Maine. And it became one of the biggest manhunts in the state's history. It went on for years. Initially, the authorities, um, the main game wardens and people like that had really suspected foul play. And I had become so enmeshed in that story, you know, had really reported on it pretty full time for the Boston Globe and had gotten to know her family. And um, 
her body had finally been found and, and authorities figured out that she hadn't been murdered, but she had just gotten tragically lost um, and somehow managed to keep herself alive for 21 days, even though she just had three days of food. And so it was a survival story. And it was also this like heartbreaking story of this woman starving to death and writing these letters goodbye to her family members. And then the state police accidentally sent all of the crime scene photos to me, which I was not expecting to see. And I, that took a huge toll on me emotionally. It really knocked me flat out. And so when the prospect of doing this, this book about Lolly and Julie came up, I was really aware of the emotional toll that this had already taken on me. And, you know, what's happened to people like Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark, or David Carr, who, you know, committed suicide after reporting on crimes. And so I knew that there was a legacy of writers who had gotten so invested in stories that it had ultimately like taken their lives. And I knew that I was the kind of person who's really emotionally susceptible to that. So, so I was, I was not super enthusiastic going into this idea of a book because I was really worried that it might destroy me along the way. It's a concern. It's a concern. I, 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 I'm impressed that you, you took it on, but you definitely have to take some serious uh, soul searching before you go into a project. I know that when I first started into uh, the first case that I worked on, and that was you know, the Amy Mahalovic case, I spoke with one of the guys that had been involved with writing about it, and he just said, he warned me, he said, once you get your name attached to it, it's going to forever be attached to it. And just remember that and for a minute it, it it kind of pushed me back because i was like oh okay so like you know you have to be one respectful obviously of the situation and two you kind of have to be an authority on the, the subject matter and and then be responsible with it it's it's uh there's a lot that goes with it can i ask though when, uh, how did you get involved with writing with the globe um I don't know, proximity maybe. It helps to live <laughs> in Maine and kind of be their correspondent. I, you know, I started studying and participating in journalism when I was a high school student. And so I just slowly kind of built up um, a little bit of a resume. And for me, the thing I love the most about journalism is having the chance to really tell people's stories in depth and really have that big narrative, you know, kind of like the classic old journalism. Um, and there aren't a lot of places left where you can still tell those long stories, you know, and the globe is one of them. Outside magazine is another one. So I, I'm always looking for places that, you know, instead of saying we have 500 words we can give you for this story, I always want 5,000 words to really tell the story. And so, so I'm always kind of seeking out those kinds of places. Yeah. I'm actually an old school trained uh, newspaper guy. I was a school editor for the school paper and and so i i love you know i mean i probably watch all the president's men you know four <laughs> times a year uh no i i love i love the old school journalism spotlight fabulous movie um so and, good you know it's it, so good so good and uh no i i do i do love uh journalism and uh, i i just the globe that yeah, that is great that they still have that ability to write longer stories and that's actually one of the reasons why i started podcasting was because mm. i used to work in the new the news and you can only tell a story in 
you know, in television news in two minutes, really, are you going to get a, a story across? Not really. So podcasting became a great medium. And that's why, like, we can sit here and have this very deep conversation about Julie and Lolly's case because there is no set time frame. We don't have to worry about somebody saying cut <laughs> or, you know, we got to be well, in, I really this appreciate that you say, I really love that you say conversation too, because I feel like that's so important, right? Is that, and that's what's so great about podcasts like yours is that, you know, so often, like when we're just writing or researching, it feels like we're doing it in solitude. And so the idea of having a conversation, not just among, for instance, the two of us, but among listeners too, that they get to be a part of the conversation too. I feel like that's really important, especially for these unsolved crimes. You know, I've been really excited by like the the kind of um, crowdsourcing that happens with podcasts or with discussion boards in terms of people really working together to move cases forward. And I wholeheartedly believe in the power of that. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. And it's it's a community. It's interesting. The whole true crime community very much wants everybody to to do well because everybody is when you do well you you're doing some service for somebody's family i try to focus on unsolved cases mostly because of the fact that there are just way too many of them and there are a lot of people out there that aren't blonde hair and blue eyes and i use that line here and there when i meet people because it's like you know for every elizabeth smart there's you know, 40 other girls that have gone missing and uh, aren't reported on or maybe get a story or a blurb in the newspaper, but that's it. And when you go back and you try to research on these cases, you really realize, wow, <laughs> this has been a long time bias. And uh, it's kind of tragic. And it's, I mean, the whole newspaper industry, that's a that's another tragedy, but you know, that's another, another a topic for another day, let's say, <laughs> but, but uh, I'm really glad to hear you call attention. Doing well. Yeah. And I'm really glad to hear you call attention to the need for more coverage of crimes involving, you know, people who are ethnic minorities or racial minorities or, you know, different sexual gender orientations. You know, I, you know, I've been doing a little bit of work on, um, you know, native crimes against Native American and First Nation women too. And especially like in Western Canada and the Western US and holy cow, you know, if, if any of those women got even a fraction of the attention that, as you said, like, you know, attractive white women get, I mean, it talk about a sobering set of statistics that we haven't begun to unpack as a country yet. The Canadian indigenous issue is absolutely disgusting and uh, a crime against humanity. And for the people that don't know what we're talking about, there are a few podcasts that the CBC has done on uh, missing and endangered and I think missing Cleo or finding Cleo. There's just a bunch of them. And, and, but it's basically like... <laughs> Uh, the, it, the the horrors that these people have gone through and then they continue to go through, especially here in America where we have reservations and I think it's one out of every three women are sexually assaulted or something along. It's, it's a really high number and uh, it might even be higher than that because it's 
I don't know if it's just part of the culture or um, what, but it's just, it's very, it's very sad. It's very sad. And again, like you, like you mentioned, these cases do need coverage. And, and that's why I feel like it's good to have a long form conversation about that because how the hell are you going to tell that story on the news? Yeah. And it's a social, you know, it's a social <laughs> justice issue. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, we look at a crime in isolation and we forget to look at all of the social issues that are underlying it. You know, one of the things that was really interesting to me is I started doing this deep dive into crimes that occur in our um, national parks is just the really long and sad, tragic, unjust story of the formation of so many of our national parks. You know, Shenandoah, where this murder of Lolly and Julie took place, there were thousands of Appalachian homesteaders who were forcefully evicted from their homes to build Shenandoah. You look at parks like Glacier National Park, you know, again, you know, untold Native American people evicted, you know, or places like Lake Powell, which I love, don't get me wrong. I mean, I grew up there, but but, you know, it was flooding these sacred Native American spaces, too. And so I think that we can't talk about violence in the wilderness without understanding, you know, some of these larger social and environmental issues that in some cases may even be contributing to the violence. Yes, yes, I would agree. I mean, we cannot put a bunch of people... One, everything we did was wrong. <laughs> like you can't, you just, you just can't do that. You, you know, like we stole so much land and for so many different purposes and right, wrong, mostly wrong. Um, what we ended up doing as far as like, where are we going to put the, these people as we displace them? We didn't do them any service. We did them a disservice and if you go to any reservation in this country, it's like going to another country and not a nice country. It's really sad. Yeah. And for me, you know, I go back all the time just because of my, you know, training, um, you know, academic work is, is this idea of wilderness access too. you know, and you look at a place like Shenandoah national park, which was segregated well into like the 60s and 70s where there was one place where black people could go in the park you know and you know when you think about who feels like they have access to our wild places you know there's there are untold numbers of people who because of the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or their religion or their body types feel like they're not safe in the wilderness um, and, you know, these crimes, these crimes against people like Lolly and Julie have only made that worse, you know, to the point that there's like an entire generation of people who identify as either female or non-binary or LGBTQ who, who think that, you know, because of this violence that's been perpetrated against um, queer and, you know, female individuals, that they're just literally not safe in the wilderness anymore. And, and I really wanted to call attention to that phenomenon in this country um, and really hopefully kind of spark a conversation about who gets to be in the woods and who gets to feel safe in the woods and why is it only some people? That's a, it's a fabulous point because the, I grew up boating and sailing and, you know, you just think about the water and 
you know, how many people utilize the lake and this, that, and the other. And it's like, you know, we just don't give access to, to certain people. It's, it's so uh, unfair. It's just unfair. I'm just going to call it what it is. It's unfair. And we've lived in an unfair society for so long that it's become the norm almost. I mean, yeah, like you talk about the segregation in uh, Shenandoah up until the 60s and 70s. I mean, that's insane. But there are also freaking states in this country that haven't passed anti-lynching laws yet. So, uh, you know, where are we? We're still where we were. It's just like I've been glossed over a little bit with some nicer stuff. And yeah, the problems still exist. And you talk about the other issues in national parks. What other murders had you did you uncover? Did you uncover anything else that was like that stood out to you as something like, whoa, I can't believe that happened? Yeah, you know, there were a couple of things that really stood out to me. Um, the first was coming to understand that as a nation, we don't have a set of rules and regulations about how violent crimes are reported on our federal lands. So our national parks, our national forests, even like the Bureau of Land Management lands out west, um, there's there are no rules about which crimes get reported and which ones don't and which ones get investigated and which ones don't. Outside Magazine did a piece a couple of years ago um, trying to trying to unpack and kind of codify just how many people have gone missing without a trace on these lands. And it's thousands. And those are people who we don't know, like, did they fall to their deaths? Were they kidnapped? Were they murdered? You know, alien abduction? We, we have no idea. So that was part of it. And then the other thing that I think was really sobering for me was just trying to understand how hard it is to solve these crimes. The clearance rate for these wilderness crimes is the lowest in the nation compared to all other crimes. Um, crimes against law enforcement rangers and law enforcement rangers who are killed in the line of duty is exponentially higher than, for instance, FBI agents killed in the line of duty. Um, and then, you know, just trying to figure out, like, what is a backcountry crime scene? What is the motivation there? You know, that kind of stuff. Like the FBI is, is um, at least the retired FBI agents that I talk to are very frank about talking about how they're just way over their heads in those sorts of crimes. I talked to some of the folks who investigated the Yosemite murders um, that Carrie Stainer was, was responsible for. And they, the agents were really, really honest and candid with me. They were like, we had no idea what we were doing. You know, we were not trained in backcountry homicide forensic investigation. You know, two of the agents were telling me that they had even interviewed Carrie Stainer fairly early on in the process, but they were so sure that this had to have been um, a crime committed by people who, who knew each other that they basically just, you know, had this creepy conversation with Carrie Stainer and then never thought about him again. And then he went on to murder another woman, you know, in or right near the park. And so... You know, I think, as, you know, as a country still, like we, when we think homicide, we think law and order, right? The TV show or CSI, we think about, you know, an apartment or an alley or something like that. We do not think about a back country campsite or a place that doesn't really have an obvious beginning and end. And, and our justice system doesn't really know what to do with those places. 
Yeah, uh, let's expand on that a little bit because the crime scene in this case, I mean, again, we're talking, like you said, backcountry murder with, you know, I mean, there's obviously animals, there's obviously rain, there's weather, you know, all sorts of different things that can impact a crime scene. And um, in this particular case, I mean, explain the crime scene a little bit. Cause it was it was pretty. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what the right word. I don't know what the right word is to is say right other word. than like. <laughs> I mean, it's just like uh, you just came across something. It's just like okay, yeah. And that is exactly what I think the FBI agents who worked the case. I think that would be the technical term that they would use to describe the crime scene too. Um, so you know what Very we professional. know is that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Lolly and Julie arrived at Shenandoah either on May 18th or May 19th, 1996. And they both were really avid um, journal keepers and they were doing a lot of journal writing while they were there. So we're able to recreate their itinerary pretty exactly in some ways for their time in the park. And for reasons that have never been clear to either the rangers, the FBI agents, forensic experts, and, and now me, is they somehow found their way onto this little known trail that used to be a, a horse trail um, decades earlier and had just grown completely unused. And being really good backcountry campers, they knew that um, that the best way to set up a campsite and be safe is to what backpackers call stealth camping, right? Which is you don't go to a campground. You find a secret spot off the trail that you've bushwhacked to where you're totally hidden. And, and that's basically the best way to build security for yourself. So that's what they did. And they had set up their camp along a stream. This was off of this trail that nobody ever used. Um, so the first question that I think everyone had at the time and still has is how did this murderer ever even find them? You know? Um, and I speculate a little bit about that in the, in the book, but, but this individual was so skilled and um, like hauntingly sophisticated as a murderer, you know, had a murder kit that had a knife and duct tape and gloves and, you know, possibly a gun, um, you know, subdued these two really strong athletic women and their dog, you know, managed to bind and gag them, um, sexually assaulted Julie, we think, um, and then, you know, murdered them with just this very brutal, you know, slice to the neck and then managed to leave without a trace, you know? So, so that's what, that's what the authorities were up against. Plus the fact that it took days before anyone knew the women were even missing. And then it took longer even for the authorities to even figure out where they were because their campsite was so hidden. So by the time they were found, you know, some days had gone by. Um, the, the medical examiner of Virginia said, uh, made the conclusion that the women had been murdered on May 28th. Their bodies were found on June, the night of June 1st. And the investigation didn't really start until June 2nd. So you know, some time had passed. And as you say, you know, there's weather, there's animals, you know, and I, I had gone through the murder scene with some of the FBI investigators and their evidence response team. And, you know, as one of the guys says to me at the crime scene, he's like, look around, like, how many rocks do you see? You know, and there's obviously hundreds, if not thousands of rocks. And he's like, one of these could be a murder weapon. 
and 999 of them could just be rocks. And, and as an investigator, how do you figure out the difference? You know, and the FBI is trained to investigate urban crimes. They're not trained to really investigate backcountry crimes. So there was this huge culture clash between the law enforcement rangers and the FBI that ultimately, I think, resulted in some mishandling of evidence and some missteps that made it that much harder to solve this crime. Yeah, securing that crime scene and then figuring out when the bodies, you know, when they were murdered is super important when it comes to, you know, determining who could be responsible because, you know, you, you talk about in the book, like how they, you know, the investigation begins and, and, you know, they're kind of like dilly dallying around about it. Like, yeah, you know, they'll come back or, you know, whatever. Um, when they were reported missing and then they find the bodies, obviously we've got a problem. And so it's, like when I read the, when I read the book, I just thought to myself, how scary those last few minutes must have been for those two women, and thinking that they're safe by doing what you just said, doing what they were supposed to do, following the things that they were trained to do. These aren't inexperienced backpackers, and then to have what happened had to have just been the the absolute worst. And then to seriously investigate this case, you have to go backtracking. You have to start looking at all these old videos, seeing what you can find. I mean, this is 96, so we're not talking about lots of CCTV or anything like that. And, you know, the... It was a brutal, brutal murder scene, and and both women. Now, get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, or correct me if I'm wrong. Were they both in their sleeping bags? Still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Lolly was in the tent, and um, her she was gagged with her long underwear, um, and her arms were duct taped behind her back, and her legs were bound with another piece of long underwear. Um, and she was found lying face down in her sleeping bag in the tent. Authorities speculate that the perpetrator murdered her first and that he really had Julie in his sights as a target. Um, he separated them and took Julie along with her sleeping bag and her sleeping pad over to near the stream. Um, and there's there's some good evidence that he had sexually assaulted her with a, a vibrator that was found at the scene um, and that he had also brought some like really creepy like BDSNN type sex toys and things that he had used Um and and so we think he probably had kept her alive for a while and had brutalized her before he then murdered her. And, you know, obviously, obviously, I think a lot about the last moments of both of these women, um, you know, and as you said, must have been like terror beyond anything we can imagine. And, you know, as bad as it was for Lolly, you know, I keep I, I always go back also to, to Julie, who probably knew that Lolly had been murdered at that point, um, you know, and what that must have been like, not only to know what's happening to you, but also to realize that the love of your life has been murdered in front of you. And I cannot imagine like the anguish that that must have been like for her. 
it it's incomprehensible. I mean, it's a question that it's rhetor. I mean, you, you really don't expect an answer because you really just don't know. It's just something we're both and we're everybody's left to ponder because, you know, unfortunately, well, fortunately, we don't know exactly what it was like for them. And uh, you can't put yourself in their position. But what you can do is you can figure out what got them there. And you said you had a couple theories on... I'm not gonna tell you, ask you to explain your theories because you know it's in the book. Um, but there is definitely, like, do you feel like once John Ashcroft came out with the indictment and stuff, like, we're gonna fast forward real quick. Um, do you, what do you think his end game was of that? Like, do you, do you really think he believed it or? Was it just sort of com- placate people? I, I'm trying to figure out exactly what his goal was there. Well, and I asked him <laughs> multiple times as I was researching the book. Um, and uh, I'm sure he gave you a straight answer, answer that, every time. <laughs> the ultimate answer he gave is that um, he doesn't have enough of a recollection of it to to really say for sure, which is remarkable to me, given that this was the first federal hate crime. But I really, you know, the investigators who were most intimately involved in this, the way they describe it is, you know, the investigators really narrowed in on Daryl Rice for a variety of reasons that we can go into if you want. Um, And they were working at the sort of regional level, right? The sort of Virginia regional level with this. And they were getting ready to go forward with an indictment on their own. And what they tell me was that basically, you know, Ashcroft and the Justice Department basically just grabbed the case right out from under them with no explanation. And, you know, literally, Julie's parents were in Virginia to make this announcement that it was going to go to this regional um you know, federal circuit court. Um, And, you know, it was the day before the indictment, the prosecutor, you know, in this, you know, Western, I think it's like the Western division of, of the Virginia circuit court was ready to make this announcement. And all of a sudden got a call from Ashcroft's assistant who said, no, 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 this is our case now. Um, and you all need to come to Washington, D.C. So you've got Julie's parents who are already feeling really fragile. You know, now they're being told that they need to come to Washington. And, you know, what what the individuals involved told me was they really felt like it was political theater. Like, you know, Lolly and Julie's sexuality, their relationship had been so politicized. We have no reason to believe that the person targeted them because of their sexuality. We have no reason to believe he didn't. You know, let's be clear. But there's no evidence yet that this was actually an intentional hate crime. And yet, you know, the Justice Department decided to make it one. And I think part of why it's been so difficult now to get this case closed, despite evidence that points to, I think, a pretty viable suspect who is not Daryl Rice. I think part of why it's so hard to get any closure is because the Justice Department had made this such a political 
issue and had made this such a high profile case with this indictment and this hate crime stuff that now maybe there's like, I don't know, some embarrassment and like egg on the face of them. And so they're like, well, we'll just kind of let this quietly slip away and maybe people won't remember that we were really sure that Dale Rice had targeted them because they were lesbians. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know. But that's that's my speculation. Yeah. And uh, we're going to get back to that in just a second. But yeah, def- definitely the egg on the face thing is uh, is true. I mean, you see it in with DAs, uh, you know, people who don't want to, you know, prosecutors who do not want to say they were wrong. They don't want to admit that they brought the wrong person to trial. And it, it is, it's like they'll force a square peg into a round hole. And I don't even know if that's the right reference, but it, you know what I mean? It's just, they'll force whatever story that they can. And with that being said, what were some of the things about Daryl Rice that they were focused in on and made them focus in on him? Yeah. And so in July of 1997, Daryl Rice was sort of having the worst moment of his life. He uh, He's somebody who's been very um, candid about the fact that he's battled mental illness all of his life, um, a combination of bipolar and schizophrenia. Um, and he, you know, sometimes takes medication for it and sometimes doesn't. And the spring of 1997, he was off his meds. His whole life was unraveling. He'd been fired from his job as a computer programmer in um, Eastern Maryland near Baltimore. Um, And he was in the park. His father lived right outside of the park and he would spend a lot of time cycling in the park. He was in the park in July of 97. He'd been up for days. You know, he was having a really bad bout of mental illness. He wasn't taking his medication. He was smoking a ton of weed. And while he was driving through the park kind of aimlessly, he had seen this um, female cyclist, a Canadian woman named Yvonne Malbasha. She was out cycling. And for whatever reason, he kind of got his sights on her. And he kind of drove back and forth and shouted some, you know, harassing and menacing and frankly offensive things at her. And he threw a soda bottle at her. He ran her off the road and um, he had said, you know, I'm going to get you. Right. Which was no doubt terrorizing for her. Right. Was no doubt absolutely awful for her. And I'm not excusing his behavior. Um as soon as she was able to kind of get to a nearby store and report that this had happened, the Rangers tracked him down. And, uh, you know, they were like, Daryl, did you just like harass and threaten that woman back there? And he was like, no. And they were like, Daryl, did you just harass and threaten that, that cyclist back there? And he was like, okay, yeah, I wanted to ruin her day, you know? And, and then he, he, while he was chatting with them because they were driving him back, so that she could identify him in person, which I think must have been awful for her, right? We're going to bring your perpetrator back so you can look him in the eye and say, yeah, that's the guy. So I don't know why the Rangers thought that was a good idea. Um, but as I've read that before and back, I'm like, why they, are you doing that? Right. right, right. <laughs> you know, but, and so they're like chatting with him as they're driving him back to where this happened. And he says to them, did you ever catch the guy who killed those two women last summer? And between the combination of the fact that he had just assaulted a woman in the park and that he had just asked about the murder of Lolly and Julie, at that point, the law enforcement rangers in the park were so convinced 
that Daryl Rice had killed Lolly and Julie, that they never really considered another suspect. And and they still don't. Like if you talk to them today, they'll tell you that they are completely convinced that Daryl Rice murdered Lolly and Julie. And there's nothing that's going to change their mind at this point. That's, I hate that. I hate that. Uh, I mean, tunnel, t- 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 I'm just going to be honest with you. Tunnel vision is just such crap. I mean, it, it's it's ruined so many cases and 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 kept so many cases unsolved for for that exact reason when when investigators and everybody's human this is absolutely not an insult to these investigators whatsoever it's what they believe and i can't put myself in their shoes but what you brought up in your book which definitely is very interesting and very um controversial not controversial but uh, i could see where they they would have issues with um you know being potentially wrong and that's why people need to read the book but i think it is um you know with, with daryl's case uh you think about john benet you think about uh like all these unsolved cases and i, I know i just brought up a really famous one but like it's that tunnel vision of just when you go on the path of it's got to be this person or you brought up Carrie Stainer, perfect example. He goes on to murder somebody else. Well, guess who's got blood on their hands as much as it doesn't sound like, you know, it's, it's not, they were looking at something completely different. They're not trained to do what homicide detectives are just trained to do. And, I think that's something you bring up in your book as well. And that is that there was one, isn't there one person, one sheriff in charge of the whole trail? The Appalachian trail has one law enforcement ranger dedicated to it. Um, Shenandoah national park had, um, I think four law enforcement, maybe five law enforcement rangers at the time, short staffed, you know, and again, they were, you know, the, the, the funding of the national parks has been a travesty since they've existed, you know? And so, you know, even I think a well-meaning law enforcement ranger is going to find some significant challenges in terms of being able to do their job. But, you know, what I come back to again and again and again is some of the real like provincialism that started to happen with this case. So when this other suspect emerges, um, this known serial killer, whose DNA they cannot exclude from DNA found at the crime scene. They refuse to investigate this individual. And this is where this parochialism really starts to take off. Like, because this known serial killer had murdered um, young teenage women, um, they're completely convinced that he's a, he's a pedophile, despite the fact that these are women who, these are you know teenagers who were sexually mature, right? So that's not pedophilia. Um, And, you know, that there are many, many, many 15-year-old teenagers who look like 20-year-olds, you know. Um, But they would say things to me like, I would say, like, well, why can't it be this guy? Why can't it be him? And they're like, well, he's a pedophile. And I'd say, well, how do you know? And they were like, well, we, we looked at his porn. And, like, the women had shaved genitalia. And I was, and in my head, I'm like, have you guys ever seen porn? Because... Like, that's like the costume requirement for people like men and women in most porn, you know, but but I think that that's just like, that's not their world. And so they just make these assumptions that have ultimately led this case to not be solved. 
I yeah, that whole that whole pedophile thing. Um, I've run into that a few times in investigating cases, and it is amazing how many times you hear that. Well, they're a pedophile. They're into boys. They're into girls. You know, and it's like, okay, well, did did you look any further than that? Because, you know, there's been, you know, not every pedophile is the same, guys. Just like not every serial killer is the same. Are there similarities? Sure. Is, Is there a commonality across the board? Absolutely. But does that mean that every single case is going to be the same? Hell no. And you can see how that would affect all these different cases. If if, if a, an officer goes, well, he's into little boys, well, then they're not going to investigate him for the death of a girl. Or, you know, this particular individual that seems very likely to be the suspect or the killer, you know, like, yeah, these women were not, I mean, these were women. These weren't little girls. This wasn't even close to like, I mean, they were, they were women. This isn't like tunnel vision is just such a touch, such a terrible thing. And it's, it's, it's human nature. I know. And it's, it's terrible to blame or put blame on these individuals, but I'm not, you know, cause I, I'm really not, I'm just, I'm just more just frustrated with the fact that it impacts a lot of these different cases. I mean, you look at the Long Island serial killer case. I mean, they, they, they still don't know what's going on there. And it's just, they throw out all these different things. They malign all these different people. Like Julie and Lolly's sexuality being part of their, the reason they were killed. Like, come on, like, Where's the evidence? Like you had mentioned that before. Like, where the hell's the evidence? And don't tell me you don't remember. Like, Mr. Ashcroft, mm-hmm. just like be honest and just say, yeah, well, we were trying to deflect against everything else that was going on in the country and whatever. It's just own it because a lot of cases yeah. would be better off if they did. And for me, you know, there was a point in my research where, you know, I realized that this case really crossed from just tunnel vision into something more like insidious. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that when Ashcroft announced the indictment against Daryl Rice, he had said, well, you know, we know that Daryl Rice said that he hates gay people. You know, we haven't we have a, a microphoned informant who recorded Daryl Rice saying he hates gay people. And it wasn't until the Innocence Project got involved with this case and his defense team, you know, really great exoneration attorneys said, well, can we hear that that informant conversation that you recorded where he says he hates gay people? And they said, yeah, sure. Here it is. And so they play it and it goes something like this. Daryl Rice says man, I'm so mad right now. And the informant says, well, why are you mad? And Daryl Rice says, they keep trying to get me to say that I hate gay people. And the guy's like, dude, that sucks. And Daryl Rice is like, yeah, right. You know, and so what they did was they took this tiny little snippet completely out of context, where if you hear the whole conversation, what Daryl Rice is saying is like, 
WTF, I clearly don't hate gay people, which if you look in his background is completely true. His roommate was gay. Like he had really good friends who were gay. Like, you know, Daryl Rice is like the most accepting human on the planet, you know, but again, like the Justice Department, in my opinion, you know, behaved unethically, immorally, potentially criminally in doing things like that. You know, like they knew the conversation. They knew Daryl Rice was saying this is preposterous. And yet they used it in order to seek the death penalty against him. And and I, I have some really big problems with that. I do too. I think that's that's totally, you know, take, talk about taking things out of context, literally. And uh, that's just, that is not how our justice system is supposed to work. If you didn't commit the crime, that means somebody else did. And just like in the Stainer case, well, there's a possibility that they're going to go out and kill again. Because in... If they're willing to kill three, you know, or two people, and then in Stainer's case it was three, uh, and then if, and then the fourth, they're probably gonna do it again. I mean, it's just I, I have a feeling that what you found in your investigation is you're barking up the right tree. <laughs> like that's the way I feel, <laughs> Be- because I mean. <laughs> There are so many things about this case that just they don't want to recognize as screw ups or, oh, hey, we may have dropped the ball here. Well, okay, we'll admit it. Like, then let's move on and, like, it's okay. Just let's move on and stop talking about Daryl Rice and maybe look into these, this other individual because, again, who cares? It's not about your ego. It's about bringing justice to these families, which, unfortunately, is it Lolly's family that her parents aren't alive anymore or Julie's family? Her mom died. Lolly's mom died very shortly after. She was just completely destroyed by this. Um, her dad, um, by the time I started working on the book, her dad had been diagnosed with late-stage Alzheimer's. And so... While, you know, he was alive for a good part of the book, he obviously it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't ethically ethical for me journalistically, you know, to be in touch with him. Um, Julie's parents are alive, you know, they're well aware that they're aging, you know, and, um, you know, spoke with me really candidly about how important it is for them to have some kind of closure, you know, and to know that they obviously can't ever bring their daughter back, but if they could at least know that the person who did this had been brought to justice or, you know, was no longer alive and couldn't do this to anyone else, that they would at least have that little bit of, of solace. And that, I think that's so important for these survivors, you know, is just, it, it's never going to bring the loved one back, but it's going to make the worst moment of their lives a little less terrible, you know, and that, that's important. It's very important. And uh, we'll wrap it up here in just a second. Uh, I just was wondering, don't you feel, you know, after you meet the parents, you really, you're like in, like you're like, I'm here until we get this thing solved. Because once you meet the parents of a loss of a child, I mean, again, you don't ever get over that. But boy, does it bond you to that particular case. Did you feel that way? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, Lolly was really estranged from her family because of some abuse that had happened there. Um, and so her friends really were her family. And it's the same thing with them, too, is um, I am so grateful for those two communities. And I'm so grateful for everything they were willing to share with me, you know, to have a stranger show up and be like, I'm writing this book about this person that you love. Can you please share all your stories. And, you know, I mean, that's really hard to ask someone to do. And they were so gracious about doing it. I spent a weekend once with Julie's parents and her mom had brought like all the family photo albums and Julie's baby book. And as you say, you know, at that moment, if I hadn't already committed my life to this case, which I definitely have, you know, at that moment, there was absolutely no going back. And the book is out, you know, and I obviously want people to read it and I want people to feel invested in it. And, and meanwhile, though, I am not done with the research. You know, the Innocence Project and I are still unpacking this case and we're going to keep doing it until we're sure we know who did it um, and that some kind of justice has been done. Yeah. And, and with that being said, th that's awesome. Like you, so you have a great relationship with the family. Uh, you are still continuing research on this case because the case still remains unsolved, unfortunately. And you mentioned the book. Where can people find the book? I am a huge fan of independent bookstores. I think they are the absolute lifeblood of communities. And so I always totally recommend that. Um, but since this is a podcast and people like listening, I will say that this amazing actor named Gabra Zuckman, who did the audio for All Be Gone in the Dark, is the narrator for the audio book of Trailed. And I have read that book 10,000 times and hearing her read it out loud, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time. And she gives me goosebumps and I know how it ends. <laughs> so that's another option for folks too. Oh, I'm a huge, oh my gosh, I'd probably go through three or four books on tape a week or, you know, digital whatever uh the libby app i can't support it enough the uh <laughs> it's the best i've actually had librarians reach out and be like thank you for promoting that <laughs> it's it's it is a great way for, <laughs> for people to read i'm like i know i didn't realize there was an audiobook but uh but i actually did the old school version i actually read read the read the old uh the old school book, but uh, yeah, it's fabulous. I recommend it to all the listeners. I really think anybody who has been listening to this show, we didn't even get into it, but like Bill Thomas, get it makes an appearance in the book. Uh, as you listeners know, Bill Thomas has been on the show many times. Catherine, how did Bill Thomas get involved? Well, you know, a lot of people have tried to draw connections between the 1986 Colonial Parkway murders and the 1996 murders of Lolly and Julie. And there are some real, you know, similarities in terms of the two crimes. And so when I saw that, I reached out to Bill Thomas and this incredible friendship was born in a moment. Um, and he's been such a great supporter of this book. He and I talk regularly. We're always sharing theories and information and documents. And, you know, as you and I were talking before we started taping the podcast, it's a really small community, you know, of people who really do these deep dives into these crimes. And, you know, it's, it's really incredible, these friendships that, that grow out of it. And thank goodness, because it's such dark, hard work. And so to, to be able to have friends to lean on and 
talk to and sometimes, you know, use Gallo's humor with can definitely keep you going in some dark spots. So I'm really, really grateful for the the larger community this has brought me. Yeah, it's definitely a community of uh, helpful people and people that are willing to give their time. And thank you again for giving your time. I can't uh, recommend the book enough. I go through millions of books a week and uh, or a year, and this was definitely one of my favorites so far in the last 12 months. So uh, definitely everybody check it out. And yeah, go to your independent bookstores and get them. And if you want the audio version, like she said, the narrator from the, uh, I mean, I love, I'll pick a narrator and I will just read their catalog <laughs> or listen to their catalog, I should say. And I end up down <laughs> I'm telling you, crazy paths. could read you. <laughs> this woman could read the phone you book? a catalog. She could read you like, yeah, the phone book. And you would sit with rapt attention. She makes me sound so good. Like... <laughs> Well, that's awesome. I think that that is great. I mean, the fact that you already have the audiobook out and the book is available at independent bookstores and pretty much wherever you get books. But definitely go support your independent bookstore. And uh, D- Catherine, do you have any uh, social media that people can follow or any way that they can follow you as far as this case continues? Mm-hmm. And that would be great. My author website is just my name, Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, miles.net. And on there, there's links to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do in this book was lay out the evidence in a way that readers felt like they could be a part of the ongoing investigation. And, and I definitely would love it if people check my work and tell me if they think I'm right or wrong or, you know, if they want to be a part of this conversation as we continue to investigate and try to solve the case. I feel like the more the merrier and I feel like crowdsourcing amateur sleuths are absolutely a great way into these sorts of things. So I would definitely welcome the company on this journey. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I really think that, uh, you know, being involved and interacting with uh, the listeners and the readers is, is a great way to, uh, you know, keep the story alive and then keep their spirits alive. You know, Julie and Lolly and, uh, and again, Catherine, thank you so much for taking an hour plus out of your day. I know you're uh, this big, huge author now. So, you know, thank you again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for the work you do and for calling attention to really important cases that deserve the time. So um, I'm just really grateful that your podcast is out there. Well, thank you very much. I, again, appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I really have to thank Catherine Miles, author of Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. If you have not picked up the book yet, I highly recommend it. It is a true crime thriller. It will definitely keep you on the edge of your seat, and you will not be able to put it down. I would recommend just like... Catherine did to purchase it at your local bookstore it's always good to support the local guy and gals so thank you again to Catherine thank you listeners for tuning in to this week's special episode and as always you know I drop new episodes of who killed every Friday as well as you can follow me on twitter at bill huffman three that's uh, if you're interested in following the leads or any shows that I have in the pipeline, you're welcome to do that. 
You can also support the show by donating via Venmo with my username at bill-huffman-3. Or you can donate with my email at PayPal. And that's uh, billhuffman123 at yahoo.com. So again, thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you to Catherine. Thank you to her agent for setting this up. And I hope you guys enjoyed the show and hope you will pick up the book. So as always, stay healthy and be safe. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. 